0: Triangles, the life and times of an NFL original team. Season 1, Episode 8, The War Year. War had raged in Europe since 1914. The United States government's official position had been one of neutrality. But at the same time, there was sympathy for the Anglo-French-Russian alliance fighting against Germany and Austria-Hungary. This sympathy grew as the result of perceived German aggressive actions, both overt and covert. And by 1917, it was clear that the United States could not avoid becoming embroiled in the global conflict. When Congress declared war on April 6, 1917, At President Woodrow Wilson's urging, it set in motion a massive mobilization of men and resources in preparation for the war effort. This would play havoc with domestic pursuits, causing activities like American football to take lower priority during the next two seasons of play. As the 1917 season opened, the Triangle's coaching situation was unsettled. Coach Talbot, had volunteered for military duty. He completed officer training at Fort Benjamin Harrison near Indianapolis and was commissioned as a captain in the United States Army. Following Talbot's commission, Major General E. F. Glenn appointed the young captain to be his personal aide at Camp Sherman in Chillicothe, Ohio, where other young men would train to become artillerymen. With Talbot's availability to coach limited by his military duties, Al Mart would act as associate coach for the season and fulfill the coach's duties during games. Mart's playing status was uncertain, however, as he struggled with knee problems. As for the remainder of the team, most of the 1916 squad expected to return, including running back Lou Partlow and ends Lee Fenner and Shine Kinderdine. Shine's brother, George, was also expected back in the fold for the season. However, as of mid-September, there were doubts about Norb Saxtetter, who would eventually sign with the Detroit Heralds, and Babe Zimmerman, whose retirement had become something of an annual tradition. Among the new faces in the lineup was Jimmy Beckley, who was just passing through on his way to Canada to enlist in the Royal Aero Corps when he heard about the team and decided to try out. Beckley ended up as a stalwart at left tackle. Carl Stork would be playing as well. However, Stork's playing would increasingly take second priority to a new role. Business manager Mike Riddell had volunteered for military service as Coach Talbot had done. Decades later, Norb Saxtetter wrote that he and several other individuals had recommended Stork to F.B. McNabb as Riddell's replacement. McNabb appointed Stork, whose administrative duties also included managing Triangle Park, its facilities, and assets. For the first time in 1917, the Triangles would play their home games at Triangle Park. The People's Railway Company made special arrangements to handle the anticipated increased demand for transportation from downtown. To encourage attendance by fans who did not want to make the walk up Riverside Drive from the terminus of the Main Street car line at the north end of downtown Dayton, the Athletic Association arranged for sightseeing trucks to carry passengers from the last train stop to the Athletic Park Bridge, now better known as the Ridge Avenue Bridge. The bridge at that time was closed to vehicle traffic due to repairs in progress, but pedestrians could still use it to access the park. Auto traffic could access the park by following New Troy Pike, now Kiwi Street, north across the Great Miami River, and turning left onto what is today called Embry Park Road. The Park Association made several efforts to promote a safe and pleasant experience for spectators. They had seen to the construction of bleachers and boxes at the park, and a fence around the entire field. For fans interested in the New York Giants' Chicago White Sox World Series, the Association arranged for a telegraph wire to be run to the park to obtain nearly real-time updates of the action. They put up a scoreboard to carry inning-by-inning updates and engaged a megaphone service to provide play-by-play during stoppages in the football game. The Triangles opened the 1917 season against the 42nd Aero Squadron from Wright Field, now Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. The 42nd was just one of the numerous military teams that had formed to promote morale and physical exercise as an adjunct to regular training. As part of a promotional campaign to build interest in the game, team manager Sergeant Tandy and his commanding officer Lieutenant W.W. W. King were to make a flyover of the city on the Saturday before the game, dropping hundreds of pasteboard airplanes containing advertisements for the contest. Some of the planes carried free tickets to the game. As an extra stunt of sorts, the 42nd dropped the football out of the plane onto the field to announce the start of the game. The game itself was not much of a contest after the early stages. The 42nd scored the first touchdown, but the triangles scored the rest on their way to a 54-6 rout. Lou Partlow scored three touchdowns, and Carl Stork chipped in two to pace the Triangles. Mart, his knee apparently better, started himself at quarterback, but substituted freely once the game was in hand. The following week saw the Triangles preparing to face a team from Illyria that aspired to the same kind of open, big-play style as Mart's squad. Lieutenant Hoyt, a former Harvard star, stepped in as a sort of guest coach to help put the triangles through their paces during the week. Meanwhile, Babe Zimmerman confirmed his retirement for the third time in as many seasons. Around the same time, word came from Camp Sherman that Captain Talbot had formed a group of select teams from men of the 83rd Division. The select teams would train to play exhibition games against the top teams in the region. The following Sunday, with Zimmerman acting as referee, the triangles easily handled Illyria by a 55-to-nothing score. Lou Partlow, Lee Fenner, and Bill Weaver each scored two touchdowns as Mart again substituted freely. The athletic park bridge was now open to all traffic and parking spaces were set aside south of the field for automobiles. Zimmerman's third retirement lasted all of one week. By the following week, he was back in the triangle fold, practicing for the upcoming game against the Toledo Maroons. The Daily News described Zimmerman in his attic, unpacking the football gear he had so carefully packed just recently. The Maroons, making their first visit to Dayton, were sent on revenge for the defeat they suffered at the hands of the Triangles at their home field in 1916. The newly unretired Zimmerman proved their undoing, however, catching two touchdown passes from Mart and kicking a field goal to provide all the scoring in a 15 to nothing Triangles victory. For all the team's success on the gridiron, though, success in attendance— continued to elude the Triangles. A crowd of 1,500 was considered a large one in Dayton, while in Detroit and upstate Ohio, teams routinely pulled in seven to 10,000 on Sundays. One fan even wrote to the Daily News suggesting that the Triangles put 3,000 tickets up for sale for a future Detroit Heralds game and then offer the Heralds a guarantee contingent on the tickets selling out. The weather was less than cooperative as well. A scheduled game at Triangle Park against the Cleveland Tomahawks could not go on because the rain had turned the field into muck. It would have marked the first visit by a team from Cleveland to Dayton for a football game. The Triangles opened November with a 27 to nothing victory over the McKeesport Pennsylvania Olympics. Mart threw two touchdown passes to Johnny Devereaux and one to Lou Partlow. Partlow, whom the Olympics had held in check on the ground for most of the game, added a late rushing touchdown to round out the scoring. Now Mart's crew faced its toughest test of the year to date, with honor on the line the Triangles would play a half on Saturday, November 10th against a select team from Camp Sherman coached by their former mentor, Coach Talbot himself. The following day, they would face a grueling game against the always tough Cincinnati Celts, with potential regional and state championships in the balance. In preparation for the game against the Camp Sherman team, the Triangles brought in reinforcements, including Norb Zachstetter, and ends Dr. Dave Reese and Dutch Steele, The Army team would include such high-caliber players as Walter Naki Rupp and quarterback George Rauderbush, who had given the Triangle's fits as a member of the Kells. Another notable in the game for the Army side was their starting left end, James Abram Garfield, a former standout at Williams College, and grandson of President James A. Garfield. The game would culminate a series of patriotic events during that Saturday, including a military parade. The plan was for the Denison University team to face Camp Sherman in the first half, with the Triangles tussling with the Army squad in the second half. Due to massive public interest in the entire event, the game was staged at the Montgomery County Fairgrounds south of downtown Dayton. The day of the game, the order of play was reversed. The Triangles faced the Camp Sherman team first, giving up a second quarter touchdown on a short run by Camp Sherman fullback Mal Scoville. Otherwise, they gave the Army side a tough game, finishing the first half down six to nothing. The Dennison squad fought gamely in the second half but were no match for the more adept and experienced Camp Sherman team, losing their half 20 to nothing. The final score, Camp Sherman 26, Triangles Denison 0. The following day, the Triangles returned to their home field at Triangle Park to confront the rival Celts. The battle raged back and forth. Both teams had chances. Mart's passing and Partlow's running gave the visitors problems in the first half, but the Celt defense stiffened in the second. In the end, neither team scored. The game ended in a 0-0 tie. The Triangles had survived their toughest two days of the 1917 season. Although they came up on the short end, in the exhibition half against Camp Sherman, they could be forgiven, having put up a stiff fight against an elite team coached by their old mentor, The tie against the Celts was arguably the greater disappointment, but it left the Triangles still undefeated in their regular season, going into the late November stretch run. To remain undefeated, the Triangles would have to navigate two rematch games on the road, first against the Maroons in Toledo, then with the Celts in Cincinnati. Sometime in this late stretch of 1917, Triangles centered George Kinderdine came up limping after a practice, and was gimpy for several days. His teammates gave him a nickname to rib him for his hobbling around. The press caught wind of it and started using it as well. And for the rest of his life, Kinderdine was affectionately known to players, sports writers, and fans alike as Hobby. The Toledo game turned out to be by far the easier of the Triangle's two late-season tests to pass. With several players, including Johnny Devereaux, Shine Kinderdine, Harry Cutler, and Dick Abrell, down with various injuries, Al Mart relied heavily on Lee Fenner, and Fenner delivered. Lee's spectacular 50-yard run after catch opened the scoring and was the first of three receiving touchdowns he caught from Mart on the day. Hobby Kinderdine capped the scoring with a punt return for touchdown as the triangles handled the Maroons 28 to nothing. Not surprisingly, the return game against the Celts at Redland Field was the tougher contest. A considerable amount of bad blood had built up on both sides since the first game. In a controversy eerily similar to the New England Patriots' deflate gate a century later, Celts players claimed that Mart had had air taken out of the ball in the previous game to make it easier to throw, a claim at which the triangles scoffed. In the rematch, despite outplaying the Celts overall, a critical error robbed the triangles of outright victory. The Celts scored off a muffed punt by Mart, giving them their only points of the day. The Triangles responded with a short drive keyed by a bad Celt punt, which ended in a two-yard part-low plunge for the touchdown. The Triangles were unable to find the end zone again, though, and the game ended in another tie, this one 7-7. The end of the second Celt game also marked the end of the Triangles' season schedule. However, The lack of a clear winner in either of the two previous games against the Cincinnati squad created demand for a rubber match. Business managers for both teams began negotiations for a third game to be played the following Sunday, December 2nd. Before the negotiations were concluded, however, the triangles were hit by a common problem of the period, poaching of players by other clubs. In this case... Dutch Teal got an offer that was too good to pass up from the Detroit Heralds, who had previously signed Norm Saxdetter and had reportedly pursued both Mart and Zimmerman before the season. Following conclusion of the negotiations for the third triangle Celt game, rumors surfaced that the Celts had somehow signed Saxdetter himself to play against his old team. That Sunday at Triangle Park, though, Norb Saxtetter was nowhere to be seen as the teams took the field. There would be no tie this time. March threw a touchdown pass to Partlow to open the scoring in the first quarter. With Hobby Kinderdine, Lou Reese, and Jimmy Beckley dominating the line of scrimmage, the Triangle defense was solid throughout. Zimmerman's short scoring run in the fourth quarter, set up by a 25 yard run by Mart and a long Mart defender pass, provided the clincher as the Triangles defeated the Celts 13 to nothing. The Triangles' 1917 campaign ended on more than one positive note. The closing win over the Celts capped an unbeaten season in which the Triangles outscored their opponents 188 to 13 on their way to compiling a record of six wins, no losses, and two ties. None of the victories, though, came against the likes of Canton or Massillon, which would have added weight to a state championship claim. The huge turnout for the Camp Sherman exhibition game never translated into bigger crowds at Triangle Park during the rest of November. Manager Stork still could not justify risking a big guarantee to the upstate teams to play in Dayton with the existing competition the Triangles had operated at a loss in 1917. On the other hand, intense interest in the Celt rivalry, aided by fair late-November-early-December weather, led to paid attendance of 2,661 for the final Celt game which was believed to be the largest crowd to see a football game in Dayton up to that date. If the team could sustain and expand on the momentum they had built, there was cause for optimism that semi-pro football could catch on in the Gem City. On Monday, June 17, 1918, the sports page in the afternoon edition of the Dayton Daily News reported that Al Mart had departed Dayton that morning for Cincinnati to be processed for military service. Sports writer Jerry Connors lauded Mart as the greatest local athlete of his generation, adding, With all his athletic honors, and despite all the praise that has been heaped upon him, he was one of the most modest and unassuming fellows local sport has ever known. And when Uncle Sam takes Al Mart, he takes a perfect gentleman, as well as a brilliant athlete. The loss of Mart was hardly the only effect the war had on Dayton athletics. Next time, a championship season marred by a pandemic. Triangles. Written and produced by Bruce Edward Smith. Research assistance provided by Danita Smith. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. For more episodes and bonus content, visit daytontrianglespodcast.com.